Our sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading just verses 11, 12, and 13. Remember that these are the words of God. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Would you pray with me? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come here this morning to worship you, to lift up our praises to you, our petitions, our thanksgivings, to confess our sins, to be declared to be forgiven before you. We thank you now that we can come to your word. Pray that as we open it, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be back down here with you guys this morning, and wonderful to have my family along with me this time. They made it. We all made it. We're healthy. Praise God. Uh, As I continue to uh, work through the book of Ephesians, when I'm down here with you, we are now in the middle of chapter 2. Remember that last time we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, and we see there uh, dead men walking in sin. Slaves to the world, slaves to the flesh, slaves even to the devil. By nature, children of wrath. That is who the Ephesians were. And by extension, that's who all unbelievers are. But God had made them alive in Christ and made them sit with Christ by his great mercy and grace. So God raised them from their spiritual deadness and made them uh, alive in Christ to sit with him at his right hand. They were saved, Paul is very clear, not because of any good in them or any good that they had done, but purely by the grace of God through faith. I want to add something to this. I had a, a wonderful discussion with somebody after last, uh, the last time I was down here, asking the question, what do I mean when we say, that, or what do we mean when we say that there is no good in people? Because uh, it's, Scripture is very clear that all men are created in the image of God, and God declares at creation that it was all very good. It, so is there good in people? And in one sense, we have to say Yes. We have to say yes, because we are made in the image of God. But the question is, what does that merit us? Paul also says that uh, man has God's law written on his heart. Is God's law good? Yes, it is good. And it is written on the heart of all men, believers and unbelievers alike. But that goodness in them only brings more condemnation upon them if they don't turn to the Father. And so when we say that there is no good in us, which we can also say, according to Scripture, we mean that there is nothing in us that merits God's favor. He made us in His image, but we have destroyed that image. We have marred that image. And because we still bear His image to some extent, His judgment is upon us. Because we bear His image, but we are not reflecting the goodness of our Creator. His law is written on our hearts, but because we don't follow that law, we receive His condemnation apart from the grace of Christ. 
And this is Paul's point then as he goes through the beginning of uh, chapter 2 in Ephesians. We are saved not by any good in us. We are to- this is the doctrine of total depravity. Maybe another way of thinking about this, though, is sometimes people have trouble with the idea of total depravity because it sounds like we, we say that unbelievers are just a bunch of orcs running around. That's not at all what we mean. What we mean is that in himself, man is totally unable to do anything to merit God's favor, to merit God's grace, to merit anything coming close to salvation. And so maybe instead of total depravity, we should use the term something along the lines of total inability. Man is dead in his sins. To borrow from Charles Dickens, dead as a doornail, right? Totally dead, stone cold dead in our hearts. And yet, these are the people, these are the kinds of people that God saves. God doesn't save good people. He saves dead people. He makes them alive. And so seeing the riches of God's grace, Paul then, in in our text this morning, gives the first imperative or command in the letter. If you remember, which you probably don't, and that's fine. But when I first preached on the first part of Ephesians down here, we we said that um, there's, uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first half, there's basically no imperatives. And in the second half, it's full of imperatives. And that's because the first half is all about the things that need to be believed. The things that Paul wants these Ephesian Christians and you, by extension, to believe because you have to believe, you have to know Christ before then you go out and act as his people. And so it's striking as you're reading through Ephesians, the first three chapters, knowing that, keeping that in mind, you come to verse 11 and Paul says, therefore, remember He gives them a a clear command here. Remember. And yet this command is not a command of things to do. It still, rather, is a command regarding things to be known and things to be believed. Look back at verse 10. Paul had just told the Ephesians that God has prepared good works for them to walk in. But Paul is not yet done reflecting on the grace of God. He says, God has prepared all kinds of works for you to walk in. You're not saved by those works. You're saved by grace through faith alone. But God has still set before you works that you should walk in. And so you might be expecting Paul to now tell us what those works are. But he doesn't. Not yet. He will. We'll get there. But for now... The command is not of things to do, but rather simply more things to know, more to be believed. Paul is not done reflecting on the grace of God, and he is not ready for the Ephesians to be done reflecting on the grace of God. So as we work through this and study this text this morning, what I'd like to, I'll give you a brief outline here of what I I intend to do. We're going to spend some time talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. What do these terms mean for these people that Paul is writing to? And what, are, what is the context of, that the Old Testament gives us for understanding this? And then we're going to spend some time talking about the covenants of promise. Because Paul, right in the center section here in verse 2, in the middle of verse 2, he says that these people were strangers from the covenants of promise. Well, what is that? What are the covenants of promise? We'll spend some time looking through um, what, the, what the Bible teaches us about that. And then finally, we'll spend some time um, looking at what does it mean when Paul says that you have been brought near? What does that mean for us? 
The Ephesian church was likely primarily made up of Gentiles. In biblical terms, up until the resurrection of Jesus, the world was visibly divided into two groups. Those of the uncircumcision, which were the Gentiles, the, uh, in terms of numbers, vastly the, the majority party, and those of the circumcision, which would be the Jews. God had chosen Abraham and his seed, extended through Isaac and Jacob as his own special people. You can see this in Exodus chapter 19, where God identifies Israel as his own holy nation, his, his chosen people. God had called Abraham out of Ur in Genesis chapter 12, entered into a covenant with him and promised him that he would um, grow the people that come from Abraham to a great nation, an innumerable multitude that would be a blessing to all of the nations. God had chosen this as his own special people and revealed himself to them throughout history through his prophets and his word granting them the benefits of being in covenantal relationship and fellowship with him. So God had identified Israel as a special people, a chosen people. And the sign of this special uh, relationship with Israel was circumcision, which God gives to Abraham in Genesis 17. He tells Abraham to himself be circumcised and to circumcise all of the males in his household. Israel, or the Jews, on the whole had wrongly turned this sign of covenant with God and the various laws it represented, the the Mosaic system, into something in which they prided themselves. So the sign of circumcision was given to the Jews as a sign of their relationship with God, of their being set apart from the world for God, and yet they used it not as, and didn't use it in this way as identifying themselves with God, or as his chosen people by his grace, but rather prided themselves in it. And in so doing, they came to despise those who did not have this sign. Dr. Seuss did not come up with the whole stars upon vars, right? This goes, this is as old as time, right? The Jews had a sign and they prided themselves in this sign and the things that it signified, thinking that because of it, because of their direct descent from Abraham, that was why they merited God's favor. And this created long-lasting enmity and hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. Some have said that the animosity between the Jews and Gentiles was, um, or or you could say, turn it around, the racial um, hostility that we have experienced in America over the centuries is nothing compared to the racial animosity, the ethnic hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the Jews, the, the word for Gentiles, is uh, uh, the Greek word is goyim, it just means nations, and it's the sort of word that the Jews would say and spit at the same time. Goyim. That was how they viewed the Gentiles. And so, when Christ comes, when he's raised from the dead and he ascends into heaven, one of the great controversies in the New Testament deals with whether the new Gentile converts needed to receive the old sign of the covenant to really follow Christ. We see this in the book of Acts. Peter is called by an angel to go to uh, Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Roman. He's a Gentile. And yet Peter is called to him to take the gospel to him. He's an uncircumcised goyim. And Peter is told told to go to him. 
And through Peter's, uh, through God revealing uh, the, the mystery of salvation to the Gentiles to Peter, and then further on to Paul, the apostles come to realize that God is sending the gospel to the Gentiles. They are going to be included in the people of Israel, actually. But this inclusion was not dependent upon these outward sign, uh, the outward sign of circumcision or a keeping of the sacrificial system or keeping of the old Mosaic purity laws. The apostles clearly deny this. You can see this in Acts chapter 15 and in Galatians chapter 2. Being in true covenant with God was never merely about the outward sign. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at verse, we'll start in verse 12. As we look at this uh, brief passage that the point is circumcision was not intended to be merely an outward sign for God's people. That was not the point of circumcision. So here's what the Lord says to his people. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose Israel as his own special people, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The Lord does not, in this instance, see that circumcision, the outward act of circumcision, is the thing that really draws his people to himself, the thing that identifies Israel as his people, but rather it's the circumcision of their heart, setting apart themselves from the heart for the Lord. If it's merely an outward sign, it's just further judgment upon them. The prophets come back to this time and time again when they're calling upon Israel, saying that these are a people that draw near to the Lord with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. They draw near to the Lord with the signs, with the things that they do, the outward expressions of their religion, but their hearts are far from me. And so this is very interesting. You have this animosity, this hatred, this enmity that develops over time between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews as a whole, though, are basing this enmity, this hatred of the Gentiles, on these outward signs that the Jews would keep. They despised the Gentiles because they didn't keep them. But the Jews as a whole had completely missed the point. It was never about those outward signs. Those outward signs were signs to them. They were supposed to signify what was going on in their hearts. But instead, they took these signs as the goal and prided themselves in it. Look also at Romans chapter 2. We see that this is not just something that God identifies in the Old Testament, but Paul, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, makes this clear in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That wasn't the point. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now what Paul's not saying here is that for the Jews at that time, that circumcision, the the act of circumcision, the outward sign, meant nothing. But it was supposed to point to being circumcised in the heart, like God says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. The people of God are not those who are descended from Abraham by blood and bear the mark of circumcision, but rather those who have the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3, Paul makes this very clear. It is those that have the faith of Abraham that are Abraham's descendants. The descendants that would receive God's covenant, the descendants that received God's promises and blessings. Not those who were descended from Abraham merely by blood. In the Old Covenant, those who had the faith of Abraham were generally marked by circumcision. The faithful Jews were still marked by circumcision. It was still an identification of their covenant with God. And in the new covenant, those who have the faith of Abraham are marked by baptism, the new sign of the new covenant. By specifically labeling, well, let's, let's turn back to our, our text in Ephesians. Look again at verse 11. So Paul says, remember you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, and and that's quite possibly a a very crude, crass term that the Jews would use towards the Gentiles. The uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And I think Paul here is um, pointing out, identifying the idolatry that was the product of the Jewish pride here. What does he call it? He calls it the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That phrase, um, made by hands, is something that comes up often in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, used to judge and condemn those who worship idols. Just as an instance of this, let me read for you Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse 15, here's what the Lord says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. The idols of the nations are the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. These idols made by man's hands are worthless. They accomplish nothing. They can do nothing. Paul, I think, hints at this when he says to the Ephesians that those who called themselves of the party of the circumcision were doing so by the circumcision made by hands. Like those who worshipped idols they were the jews who relied on these outward signs were no better than their gentile uh, their gentile opposites who created and fashioned idols to worship 
Salvation comes only by grace through faith. And without faith, then, physical descent from Abraham and the sign of the covenant were as valuable as dung, which is what Paul says in Philippians 3. Paul was the model Jew, the model Pharisee, keeping the law as perfectly as a man can. And yet he says that all that he had done, all that he had kept, was as dung to him. It was as dung before God Almighty in terms of meriting any of God's favor. Paul understood clearly that salvation was only by grace through faith. Now all this being said of the Jews, being outside of God's chosen people was still a real problem for the Gentiles. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. So the Jews had all, all of their own issues, their own problems of um, having been brought near before God in covenant with him, but in many ways despising that covenant, misusing it. But the Gentiles, verse 12 says, at that time were without Christ. They were without a Messiah. They were without one who saves as opposed to the Jews who had the promise of a Messiah in the Scriptures. The Gentiles had no promise of a Messiah. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were foreigners. And we know from what Scripture teaches elsewhere that they were foreigners ultimately by choice. Romans 1 teaches us that man in his pride suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. So these Gentiles were not foreigners from Israel because um, they... They didn't know any better. Ultimately, God had revealed himself to them in creation and they had decided to worship the created rather than the creator. That's why they bowed down to idols. But because of this, they were foreigners from the people of God and cut out from his people. They were strangers to the covenant promises that God had given to his people. And because of this, Paul says, they had no hope. They had no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul tells the Thessalonians that he's writing to encourage them so that they might have hope for those who have died, unlike those who do not have hope. There's no hope in the resurrection for the Gentiles. They are apart from God. And so this is what Paul says then, the last point in verse 12. You were without God in the world. The word there that's translated without God is just one word. It's atheoi. It's the same, it's the root word where we get our word atheist. The Gentiles were atheists. Not so much in their beliefs, but primarily in what they actually had, the knowledge of God that they had. They were without God. And just like I think uh, Paul was, is poking at the Jews by saying that they were of the circumcision made by hands, calling that idolatry, he's also poking at the Gentiles here. Gentiles were without God. They were atheists. And that is the term that the Gentiles would use of the Jews and the Christians. The Romans and the Greeks called Christians and Jews atheists because they only believed in one God. And not only was it only one God, they had no images of him. 
They didn't bow down to any gods. They had no physical representation of a god. They were atheists. And Paul says, no, you were the ones without God. They were truly without God. No hope, no Messiah, no promises, strangers. So what does this mean that the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise? I'm spend a little time here identifying and laying out for you in a brief outline the, um, what these covenants were. Throughout history, God had made special covenants with his people. At root, a covenant between God and his people is simply God stating, I will be your God and you will be my people. These are the covenants that God entered into with various people in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Here's a, a brief definition of a covenant for you. A covenant is defined as a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. <clears throat> a covenant is a solemn bond. I'm a teacher, so I know I need to repeat this because I see some of you writing it down. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered. It means initiated by God himself overseen by God, with attendant blessings for those who keep covenant and curses for those who break covenant. The first covenant we see in Scripture is in the Garden of Eden. God covenanted with Adam, giving him life and a world to take dominion over and the promise of a curse if he broke that covenant in Genesis 2 shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so when Adam sinned, God established the foundation of a new covenant with mankind, the new covenant that would then spread through all of history and tie all of these covenants together. And God established this new covenant or gave the foundation of it in the midst of the curses that came upon the world. Genesis 3, verse 15. God promised that he would send a seed, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so the rest of the covenants build upon and, and point further to the fulfillment of this promise. Promise that God would send a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. God covenanted with Noah. So first we have Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Genesis 2, then God make, establishing a covenant with fallen man in Genesis 3. God covenanted with Noah in Genesis 9, promising never again to judge the earth with a flood because of sin and establishing a relationship between him and Noah and his sons. Later in Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of his homeland to follow God and be father of his people. God promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, which in the New Testament we can see is extended and expanded to encompass the whole world. He promises to make Abraham the father of many nations and through him to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that blessing, of course, ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in John, John says that 
the Son did not, uh, that God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. All the nations of the earth are blessed through Christ. Thus Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. God also covenanted with his people when Moses led them out of Egypt. And at Mount Sinai, God formally established Israel as his chosen people. You can see this in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. And in Deuteronomy 5, where God sets out his covenant with his people, Israel, declaring that he has brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and then gives them the covenant, the commandments, the code by which they would remain in covenant and in fellowship with God. Blessings and curses for keeping and breaking that covenant. God also covenanted with King David. So, So far we've got Adam. Before the fall, Adam after the fall, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with, through Moses to the people of Israel, and then God covenants with King David. And he promises that a son of David would sit on the throne of David forever. And it seems at first, as you read this in 2 Samuel 7, and then going on into the rest of Samuel and Kings, that, that Solomon is this promise. He's this great king that establishes a kingdom and, and uh, is full of wisdom. All of the nations come to him to seek wisdom. He becomes the richest ruler in the world. But Solomon fails. He falls short of being on the throne of David forever. And we look through the rest of scripture and we see that, no, it is King Jesus, the son of David. The New Testament makes it very clear that he is this son of David who is to sit on the throne forever. So all of these covenants point to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the covenants of promise. He is the one who established the new covenant by his blood. This is why Paul says that these are the words of Jesus when Paul is giving to the Corinthians the, Lord, the, the um, formula for the Lord's Supper. He says that, this, uh, that Jesus said, taking the, the cup, the wine, saying, this is the covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is the one who comes and ultimately brings union between God and man, reconciling man to God. We'll see this later on in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 16, which we're not going to spend much time on today. But Jesus comes and he makes, he's bringing peace between Jews and Gentiles, but also if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God, in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Christ comes, and in his coming, and fulfilling these covenants, he brings reconciliation between man and God. But not only that, that's the ultimate reconciliation, but because of that, he also brings reconciliation between man and man, between Jews and Gentiles. And so, having reconciled man to God, Jesus also extends the covenant promises to all who are in him. Paul makes this point, this this is basically Paul's argument also in Galatians chapter 3. That all who are of the faith of Abraham are Abraham's seed and therefore are heirs of the inheritance that was promised 
to Abraham. It's not just to the Jews. In fact, it's not to the Jews at all if they don't have the faith of Abraham. You are saved by grace through faith. So again, Paul says to the Gentiles, remember, to these Ephesians, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without the Messiah, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and atheists in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When God gave Adam the Garden of Eden and told Adam, eat of, the, eat of all of the fruit of the garden, but of this one tree you may not eat, God made it very clear that the curse, the wages, what Adam would merit by his disobedience would be death. And Paul says this also in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. And so the only way for sinners to come near to God is by means of blood. Atonement must be made. If there is no blood, there is no salvation. And so it is by the blood of Christ on the cross that the Gentiles were brought near. This is Paul's point in verse 13. Because of what Jesus did through his blood on the cross... Those who were far off have been brought near. They were dead in their sins, just like the Jews were. Right? Paul, Paul makes this clear in verse 3. He's describing the Gentiles. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves. Paul, speaking as a Jew, Paul says, I'm right there with you. I was dead in my sins. I was under the power of the devil. I was under the power of my flesh. Dead in their sins, separated from God, without hope. But now in Christ, they have been brought near. Near to God, personally. Near to the promises that God gives to his people, corporately. The promises of the covenants in the Old Testament then are not just for the Jews, but for all who have the faith of Abraham. One more passage to look at. Galatians chapter 3. The last couple of verses of the chapter here. Starting in verse 26. For you are all Sons of God. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, a mix of Jews and Gentiles. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's one of the things that baptism shows us. If you're baptized into Christ, you, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. You've put him on. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. There's no difference in, in terms of your access to God any longer because of Christ. And then, most importantly, verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, and you are recipients of the promise of the inheritance that God has for you. All who are in Christ are Abraham's seed, and therefore are heirs according to God's promise through his covenants. What does this mean? Ultimately, this means peace with God. But it includes many other things. It means peace with man. It means you have the the ability to have the peace of Christ in your marriage. Because you've been brought near to God. It means you can have the peace of Christ in your relationship with your parents. And with your children. It means you can have the peace of Christ in your relationship with your brother that you can't seem to get along with. But no, there's a promise for you of reconciliation, a promise for you of peace. And it's not in you, it's not in anything that you've done, but it's in the grace of God for you, in the works that He has set before you to walk in, knowing that you are in Christ. It means that you can have assurance, certainty, In whose you are. Are you in Christ? Have you been baptized according to the scriptures? Are you walking in the light? Confessing your sins? Taking responsibility for the things that you have done and thought and said? These are evidences to you of your faith. These are evidences to you that you are in Christ. And so you can have certainty and assurance that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. This is because the scriptures are yours. I I, uh, sing regularly on Sundays as we drive to church. My family and I sing Psalm 121. I want to read it for you because it struck me as we were driving down this morning. This psalm is yours as the people of God. And it would not be yours if the Gentiles had not been brought near. But because you have been brought near, because you have been made the new Israel, because you have been made God's people, this psalm is for you. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? Do you need help? In your work, in your life, in your relationships? In your soul? From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, that's you, you are Israel. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. It means he's your guard. 
The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. That psalm is yours. Those promises are yours because Christ has brought you near. Paul will later explain that the salvation and adoption of the Gentiles is one of the great mysteries that was made manifest in Christ. He gets to this in in the next chapter in Ephesians. It was a mystery which had always been part of God's plan. It was always part of God's plan to bring the Gentiles in. But we, removed from Paul's writing by some 2,000 years, need to heed Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian Gentiles because we too are Gentiles. Apart from the grace of God, we too would still be without Christ, separated from his people, strangers to his promises, without hope and without God. But now in Christ, we too have been brought near to God, reconciled to him and heirs of his promises. All of scripture is yours. All of it. Even the parts that Christ has fulfilled, they're yours for your benefit, for, to, make, to be profitable to you. All of the promises that it contains are for you. And so we too must remember this, that we have been brought near. This is Paul's command in this passage. Remember that you were separated from God, but you've been brought near. And so therefore, all my doings, everything that I do, begins with knowing and believing that Jesus Christ has died for my sins. And everything that I do, I begin by believing and knowing that I have been raised to new life in him and that I have been brought near by his blood. And knowing this, then I can go and walk in whatever works this gracious king has set before me. So whatever is in front of you this week, whether your relationships, whether your work, whether your schoolwork, Walk in those works that God has set before you, knowing and believing that you've been brought near and that therefore he has given you everything that you need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it. We thank you that you have revealed Christ to us through your word through the work of the apostles and the prophets. Father, I pray that you would let these things go into the hearts and minds of these people assembled here this morning, that they would know you, that they would know Christ, that they would know that Christ has brought them near to you, and that therefore they can walk in whatever you set before them to do as their gracious king. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As our communion meditation this morning, I want to continue to reflect on some of the things from the sermon. Many of the different sections of our worship service are modeled after the sacrifices that God laid out for Israel in the Old Testament. And there are several reasons for this. Because we have been brought near and made the covenant people of God, we believe that the Old Testament, therefore, is our scriptures. 
It is something for Christians to read, to study, to know. It is not something that was given to Israel and is no longer important to us. Parts of the Old Testament have certainly been fulfilled by the work of Christ, such as the sacrifices, and so we are not bound by them like the Israelites were. However, even those parts of the scriptures are profitable for us to study and to meditate on. As Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is profitable to make us complete and fully equipped as the people of God. That includes Leviticus. If we study the Old Covenant sacrifices, we see that there are aspects of the New Covenant that naturally correspond closely to the Old Covenant. Here's an example of this. Communion, the Lord's table, is very similar to the peace offering in the sacrificial system. The peace offering was the offering that came after the worshiper had been made right with God. And it was the offering where everyone involved ate together. We see that here. This is a part of our worship service. After we've been made right with God in confessing our sins, after God has rearranged us, rearranged our hearts by the preaching of his word, and we come now to his table where we eat together. In the Old Testament, in the peace offering, God consumed some of the sacrifice in fire, The priest ate some of it, and the worshiper ate, signifying the fellowship and forgiveness that comes from union with God. The sinner was forgiven, and because of this, he was able to participate in fellowship with God by means of a sacrifice, a sacrifice that ultimately pointed ahead to Jesus. And so that's what we are doing here this morning. We are coming to the Lord's table to fellowship with him because we've been forgiven, to to renew our covenant with him. And so, if you have been baptized into Christ, he has declared that that he has brought you near by the blood of his cross. And so then, to all who have been baptized, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The benediction comes from Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.